how to transition away from that hell. <laughs> He's like this black hole that just sucks everything in. It's amazing. Uh, but y'all, uh, thanks for being here at RUF. We have about three weeks left to go. Um, or we do actually have three weeks left to go in RUF this semester. I'm going to be wrapping up uh, our sermon series in Acts. And uh, I just want to say, it's been really fun for me to get to go through this and talk about what does it looked like for Jesus to continue his mission in the world as he uh, has ascended into heaven, as he has been resurrected after the cross? Um, what does it look for him to continue to work in his church and in the world? And that's really what we're asking right now, which is actually really appropriate seasonally as we finish up Easter. Um, so tonight we're in Acts chapter 8, um, verses 26 through 39, and we're looking at uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? He said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. Let me pray for us and get started. Father, I do pray that you'd be with us tonight in your spirit, um, that you'd use it to show us uh, the good work of your son, or that you'd meet us in our fatigue, or that you'd meet us in our doubts, that you'd meet us in our joys and our fears. Um, Lord, that as we come to you, you would come to us, and you'd show us the beauty and the power and the truth of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Um, Y'all, I heard a metal lady, uh, I guess last year, her name was... Rosaria uh, Butterfield. You probably have heard of her, or uh, if you haven't, uh, it's totally fine. But if you don't know anything about her story, she was, I guess, 15, 20 years ago now, she was a tenured women's studies professor at Syracuse University up in New York. And uh, she was uh, in a same-sex relationship, long-term, very happy in it. And she starts to write a book on evangelicals and evangelical Christians. And so she's writing this book. She says, you know, it would be actually be really helpful if I sat down and actually talked to an evangelical Christian. And so she goes and she finds a pastor who's evangelical and meets with him and starts to talk with him. And she starts to ask him things like, you know, why do you believe what you believe? How does this shape uh, how you act in the world and what you're doing and kind of what you worship and all these, all these kind of just basic worldview questions that she's asking him. And he answers them the best he can and he starts to ask her some of those questions himself. And say, so why do you believe what you believe? And why do you act in the way that you act? And how is that kind of coherent with these things? 
And over time, she starts to really wrestle with Christianity and the gospel, and she becomes a Christian over a period of several years. And now she actually lives in North Durham and is married to a pastor up there, and they act out this radical hospitality. Um, you could go and eat dinner at her house one week if you wanted to. Um, but you hear, I, I heard her tell this story, and from the way that she described it, I did not get the sense that the people around her who were Christians were thinking, you know, this is somebody that is like on the cusp of becoming a Christian. Like as she's this tenured professor. You know, if they were, they were like trying to juggle, like, you know, how do I wisely spend my time for God's kingdom? Some, I think some of them probably would have said, I could take the generic Syracuse student who came from a good family, whose uh, parents would give me a round of applause if they kind of converted to Christianity, or I could go after the tenured women's studies professor who's engaged in this long-term relationship with another woman and has by you know every standard of the world a ton to lose and very little to gain like she does not seem like a low-hanging fruit and yet the story of her becoming a christian just shows that you really can't know who's going to be receptive to the claims of christianity i mean reading the gospels you see jesus saving very very moral seeming people out of their moralism and convincing them that it's not their morality that will save them. You see him saving very immoral seeming people and saying that it's not their lack of morality that will keep them out of the kingdom of heaven. That there is no one who doesn't need him and he can take anyone's sin and make them clean. And that's just always been true. That God can save anybody. God's kingdom doesn't grow because of the quality of the people in that kingdom. Lots of people in God's kingdom are not very good people. It's actually got to be kind of the requirement to get in. But God's kingdom grows because of the quality of the king. I think the trouble for us a lot of times is that from our perspective, there are some very tough people out there that you meet and you think, no way is this person going to become a Christian. I mean, we can look at some of the non-Christian people in our lives and say, okay, taking into account the way that maybe this person has been mishandled by Christians, and the fact that they've got this worldview that kind of runs totally counter to the Bible, and they seem very happy and how moral like they think they are. Like this person seems to be pretty good, doing pretty good, and I'm not sure inviting them to my community group or inviting them to RUF or inviting them to church is gonna do a lot of good here. But it's not we're gonna look at a passage that says, actually, you don't know. Actually, do just that. Because it's not the kind of person who determines who will or won't be saved. But it's the goodness and the power of God. So tonight I want to look at this story and I want to just ask three questions of this text. I want to say, how is God at work? Through whom is God at work? And with what is God at work? How is God at work? Through whom is God at work? With what is God at work? So how is God at work in this passage? One, he's at work in totally unexpected ways. Philip is just living his life when this angel approaches him and says, leave this place and go out onto this lonely road in the desert and find this guy. Was this Philip's plan? No. When he woke up that morning, he had no idea this was going to happen. But the angel approaches him and Philip goes at his command because he believes that God is at work. Faith follows God into unexpected places. And this whole episode just hammers home the reality that being someone who wants to follow God in mission 
does not mean that I know exactly how God is going to work in that mission. I mean, are we entitled to know how God's going to work? No. I mean, I don't even know how God's going to work in my life, let alone someone else's life. He doesn't follow our plans. But He calls us to follow His plan and to follow Him. Instead of just demanding that we know how things are going to work before we start something like, give me the A, the B, and all the way to the Z, and I'll kind of check it out and make sure that, you know, (laughs) this works top to bottom. Like, God just calls us to follow Him. And to follow Him into really unexpected places. Like, maybe to the cross-country club. Maybe to a group project with people. Maybe to that totally moral-seeming person that you live next to. Like, what if those are the unexpected places where God is just going to show up? Do you see Him as someone that could actually lead you there and make something happen? Two, we also have to reckon with the fact that this encounter doesn't happen on Philip's initiative. It happens because of the initiative of God. And this is important to note because sometimes from our end we can wonder, is God reluctant to save the people in my life? Like, where is he and what is he doing with my family members who aren't Christians? Or my good friends that I grew up with that aren't Christians? Is he reluctant to save people? We can sometimes have the sense that we care more about the people in our lives than God does. And that we would do anything to, like, help them become Christians. But God is kind of like just chilling in the back doing nothing. But God is not reluctant to save anyone. And he is so willing and able to guide people into salvation and to guide people like us into playing some sort of role in that salvation in fact he calls it to us but he's just not going to tell us the plan and how it's going to happen why did the eunuch go to Jerusalem and worship I have no idea how did he get this scroll no clue ministry is incredibly intangible you're seeing snapshots of what God has done Philip is stepping into those snapshots because God has called him there But he just doesn't know the whole story. He doesn't know the whole plan. And that's okay. Because what we have is a God who calls us to follow him into his work. And to trust that he's actually at work. And this is just the way it's always been. I mean, consider this. Kind of fun trivia fact for you. But North Carolina has the highest proportion of people who are descended from the Highland Scots of anyone outside of Scotland itself, right? Like, I know, take that to trivia night. (laughs) At the time that Philip is meeting this eunuch on this road, the Scots were called Picts. And they were wild people. When the Romans fought them, they would strip themselves totally naked, paint themselves blue, grease their hair with lye, and then just, like, go hard, like, as, like, barbarians, like, fighting. They were, like, giant, angry smurfs trying to kill these Roman guys, right? Like, totally terrifying. Almost anyone of northern European descent has some of that in them. But God looked at this whole continent of really wild, crazy people and said, you know, this is not the low-hanging fruit, but I'm going to go after these people. And for thousands of years, that's exactly what He's done. He's doing that now in China. He did that in South Korea. He's doing that through sub-Saharan Africa. More people have become Christians in Iran in the last 40 years than the previous 1,600 years. Like, God is at work in crazy ways with things that you would never expect. And if you're here, it's probably because at some point in history, 
God called some Christian to look at some blank spot on a map and say, go and take the good news to those people. Go and take it to that part of the world. Like, you need to share this. And then they took that risk with your ancestor. Or maybe they took that risk with you. But you just can't put your finger on where God is going to work or how He's going to work. But you can be confident that He is at work. Okay, so through whom is God at work? Who's God at work in? Let's start by looking at the eunuch here. What kind of guy is he? He's African, so he's not Jewish. He's from Ethiopia. He's a very high-ranking court official. It says he's in charge of the treasury for the queen. When you think of him, think of someone who is super well-educated, incredibly hard-working. He's like the top banker in their country, like the head of the Federal Reserve. He's a big deal. But he's also a eunuch. Which means that he's either chosen to become a eunuch or had that choice made for him. But regardless, his life is his work. I mean, he has no other family than the one that he actually came from. But he's not going to have a a wife. He's not going to have kids. When people meet him, they're going to know from the moment they meet this guy that he's someone who's been made different in a very intimate and very painful way. No matter how high he climbs, he is an outsider. And look at what Philip does when he meets him. First, look at what he doesn't do. He doesn't shake his finger at this guy and say, you know, turn or burn. He also doesn't look at this guy, though, and say, you know, he's reading Isaiah. He'll get this. Like, he steps into this man's chariot and is present with him where God has been at work in his life. Philip's confidence is that God is going to work in this moment. His expectation is that God won't abandon him if you brought him into this person's life. Which means that when you meet someone, you can act with the expectation that God has already shown up. Okay, but how does he do that, Simon? Because, you know, not everybody I meet in the pit is already kind of reading the Bible and asking questions about it. Okay, somebody once said that all truth is God's truth. That just by nature of a person participating in the true things of the world, the goodness of food, the goodness of friendship, the elegance of mathematics, which I I don't understand. I'm a pure liberal arts major. Uh, The irreducible complexity of biology. Just by the fact that people participate in that truth means they are attached in some way to God's truth because he made the world. And so your job is to love people that God has guided you to and to help them find the truth that God has already communicated in their life and then to trust God as you help that person find more of the truth about why the world is the way that it is. You know, science does this incredible job of telling you the what of the world, like how fast light goes, what are the chemical reactions necessary to make a a medicine work, like how heavy does a steel beam need to be in order to support a bridge. But it is a terrible job of telling you why. And people, no matter who they are, are always asking why. Like, why does it hurt so bad when I get broken up with? Why is it important that I save a life through medicine rather than take it? Why is building bridges better than building tanks? It is for Christians to prayerfully ask God, who are the people that you're guiding me to, that you're calling me to love and helping me to figure out, how do I help them figure out more of the why of the world? It just begs the question of who in my life needs this? Who needs to sit next to me in Hamilton and listen to this? How do I reach out to them? How do we together reach out to outsiders? Because you're not doing this alone. God's gathered you into community. 
So how do you invite people into your community group? God is guiding Philip to the Ethiopian, but Philip has still got to go. But the advantage that you have is that you've got a whole community of people that are with you in this. There's a story that I read uh, this week that happened last July in Panama City Beach, Florida. So close to where Suco is, but not exactly where it is. Hold your woo. <laughs> Only because <laughs> where this story is going. Uh, <laughs> but six people in a family swimming together, parents, grandparents, two little kids. Half the family's visiting from out of town. The other half has just moved uh, to the Panhandle of Florida from Georgia. None of them have a strong sense of just how powerful the currents and the tides are right there. And what happens is they get sucked out into the tides really quickly as they're swimming around, and they can't get back. Like there's this grandma who's out there, the boys are playing, the mom is out there, and the dad and the nephews and the granddad, they swim out to where uh, their families and try to pull them back in, but the tides are so powerful that they get stuck out there too. And then these randos on the beach see them like struggling out in the tides, and they go out there and, and try to save them, and they can't get back. So suddenly there's like 10 people out like past the sandbar and are not able to get back. And everybody starts to panic. And people on shore notice there's no lifeguard out here. But somebody calls the police. The police show up and the police know, like, I can't go out there and get these people. Like, we've got to call in a police boat to come and get them. But that takes like 30, 45 minutes, which is too long. And so... Meanwhile, Grandma has been struggling against the tides, and she's panicking, and she has a heart attack in the middle of the ocean. And the dad and the granddad are, like, swimming and trying to keep her up above the water. And at this point, like, flashing lights are happening, police vehicles are happening, a crowd is forming on the beach. And this lady, Jessica Simmons, walks by on the beach, and she's kind of just a bystander in the crowd, and she sees what's happening. She sees the people out there in the ocean, and she says, these people are not going to drown today. We're going to go get them. And so what she does, she gathers all the people she can, and she gets the surfboards and the boogie boards and the rafts that people have, and they make this giant human chain, and they start on the beach, and they hold arms and legs, and they go out into the water past the sandbar, And they make this chain and they grab the family and they bring them back. And everybody gets back. Totally safe and sound. Grandma goes to the hospital. She's recovered. I have to tell you all that. I've got a grandma. (laughs) But y'all, I tell you that story because it's a picture of RUF. That there's this group of people that are linking arms together and doing something that we couldn't do about ourselves. That together we're doing for other people what they can't do for themselves. And it's through these people that God is actually saving and working. Like through our community groups. Through you inviting people to RUF or inviting people here to church. Having conversations. That you're making like this human chain and bringing people out. And bringing people in. Like into God's work. And that's for everybody. Anybody can participate in that. Because we're in this together. Okay, if that's who God's at work in, then with what is God at work? With what is God at work? Look at this. He's working through the Bible, being explained in such a way that it makes sense of this man's life. Philip runs out to him. He heard him reading Isaiah. 
He asks, do you understand what you're reading? The guy says, how can I? Unless someone guides me. Like, I mean, just like a layup right there, right? <laughs> and then it tells you what passage he's reading. It says, like a, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before his shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? That doesn't mean like the people around him, like millennial or Gen X or whatever. It means his children, his offspring, the people that would come from him. Who can describe that? The answer is no one, for his life was taken away from the earth. The eunuch is reading from this Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah 53, which is this beautiful encapsulation of Jesus' ministry hundreds of years before he's born. Think about what a eunuch would experience as he's reading this. The prophet is talking about someone who's treated barbarically, for whom justice is denied, because of his ill treatment, has no children. For a guy who can't have kids himself because of the service that's been required of him, how could he not be wondering, who is this about? How would this person get my life? Is this the prophet? Is this someone else? Because for someone who's always been an outsider, no matter how high he climbs, it sounds like maybe they would understand me. If the eunuch had read a little further, and my guess is he probably did, though Luke doesn't record it because we just get snippets of things here in Acts, he would have read the words from Isaiah 56, just three chapters later, where God says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give them a house and within my walls a monument. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. It's better than sons and daughters. And think about like how that word applied to this man's life would shape the way that he understood God, would shape the way how he understands himself. That God identifies with the weak. He identifies with the maimed. He saves a person whose life is devoted to work by calling them to himself and saying, come and rest in me. I will give you something better than children. I will give you an eternal life. Because he is a God who's pursuing people, whatever it takes, and he's pursuing it through his word, through the Bible being opened up and applied to their lives. Do you know how beautiful this is? That to love someone... And to feel a sense that God has guided me into this person's life. And to watch a person see, maybe for the first time, that this is what God is like. That God identifies with me and loves me. Like That is a high privilege. Look, the good news is good, not just because it's news that sets us free. It's certainly that. But what makes it so good is that it connects us to the one who is life himself. Who is goodness himself in his person. To Jesus. That to open the Bible, to have the God Spirit work in your life so that you achieve faith, and it's given to you as this gift, like that is life because it connects you to Jesus. Are you ever really afraid of the future? Like, how's all this going to work out? All these tests and clubs and all the things that I'm doing. I feel that sometimes still. I still get anxiety dreams sometimes that I. I signed up for a class, and I forgot about it. And then it's like the last week of finals, and someone's telling me about this class that I forgot that I signed up for, and I've like failed it. Like, I still have that dream, and I'm 34, right? Or I still wake up, and I like am churning with the things I need to do. And a lot of that is just, I mean, that's just me. But the Christian hope says that 
regardless how we feel about those things, it's going to work out because we're connected to Jesus. And He rules all things in heaven and earth for the good of His people. Not one hair falls from their head apart from His will. Do you find that comforting? I do. Like if you and I find that comforting and beautiful and good, why wouldn't other people on this campus find that too? There are lots of people who wrestle with anxiety and panic attacks and fear of the future. Can we help them connect the dots to the person that rules all things for their good? I mean, our confidence in mission is just the answer to this one question. Like, does God like people who are lost? Does God like people who are lost? He loves them. He seeks them out. He pursues them through community and through His Word. He sends us into really crazy, unexpected places. I never thought that I was going to be a college minister when I was in college. This is completely unexpected for me. It's so good. It's so wonderful to be a part of this. Because it's great to be a part of God's work in your lives and the lives of people on this campus. So I want to end with this. There's kind of a, I guess a major feel-good news story going on in China right now, which I don't read Chinese newspapers, because I don't read or speak Chinese. But uh, that's going to come as a shock to a lot of you, I know. (laughs) But through my news sources, which I'm assuming are not fake news, this is, this is what I've heard. Uh, Chinese husband and wife, uh, they had a daughter about 24, 25 years ago. They are fruit sellers, on a, the kind of selling fruit in this kind of vending, kind of roadside stall along the uh, southwestern city of Chengdu. And one just particularly busy day, the, guy, the dad runs out to get change for this customer, and his wife um, wasn't there. She was running errands or something like that. But he was watching his daughter he runs out to make change. He comes back, gets the change for his customer, looks up, and his daughter's gone. Like, he cannot find her. And he and his wife search everywhere. They look all over the city. And days become weeks, become months, become years, and they never give up. Like, they're putting out uh, flyers. They're putting out advertisements. The Internet rolls around into China, and they start doing online ads. Uh, they, people tell them, you know, you need to leave Chengdu because there's a lot of just painful memories for y'all here. And they never leave because they say, what if our daughter comes back here? In 2015, the dad decided to broaden his search by signing up to become an Uber, the equivalent of Chinese Uber. And he becomes like this Uber driver so that every person he meets he can hand out this Have You Seen My Daughter card to. Like he is searching everywhere for decades And they search and they search and they search until finally, after 24 years, he gets this call from this young woman who lives thousands of miles away in another part of China. She's seen this online ad. Someone had sent it to her because they said, you know, this sounds a little bit like you and the girl in this picture looks a little bit bit like you. And this light bulb had gone off in her head because she'd grown up with these adopted parents and she realizes, I'm the little girl this couple's been searching for. And after all these years of waiting and looking and searching and passing out cards and becoming an Uber driver with the hope that one day one of your passengers would be your daughter, 
This family is reunited because the dad and the mom never gave up looking. They searched for her so hard for as long as it was going to take. Do you know that God is a good father who searches for his people? He looks for his children all over the place. And when he finds them, it's his joy to welcome this person back in and love them and be united to them. And do you know that the joy of mission is to be found by your father and then to enter into his love of finding other children? People who are lost. People you go to class with. People you live next door. People that are in your family. That the joy of mission is to enter into God's search and His delight in finding people who are lost. And so that's my invitation to you tonight. To enter into God's joy and His love and to look for people and to search with our Father for His children. Amen. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray that You would help us to enter into Your search for your people. Lord, there are so many lost people around us. Maybe some of us here are lost tonight. Lord, would you help us to love the search? Would you help us to love the people that you've called into our lives and help us to love them through your word, through prayer, through kindness and love, through truth and honesty, or through modeling our own need of you and the fact that you've looked for us? God, call us into those things. Call us into your joy and your love. God, if there's people here who don't know you, we pray that you call them tonight to yourself. But Lord, wherever you go, help us to look and search with you. Lord, and to do that with your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. We all stand.